Okay. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be back here on this Tuesday to begin the journey through the book of Acts. It's a new year, new class, we have new people. We're just grateful for this time of fellowship and for learning, and we pray that your Holy Spirit, um, who is indeed the driving force, the driving figure, the driving person in the book of Acts, will, will fill us with lots of energy, <coughs> energy and enthusiasm as we move forward um, through this second volume of Luke's work. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, yeah. So, I'm over the cough, but I guess I'm not over everything. I don't know. I don't worry about it. Yes, Gary? I have an announcement. An announcement. These two lovely birds have been married 64 years. 64 years. Oh, wow. Wow. God bless you, dear, really, really. Yeah. Okay, yes? I, I'm sorry, I can't hear you, dear. Next Tuesday, the high is going to be 21 degrees. Are we going to play it by ear? Play it by ear? I haven't seen that. I haven't seen them say that the high was going to be 21 degrees. But, but if it's... It, hang on. Hang on, everybody. For two things. First of all, if we don't have class because the weather conditions are too horrid, then I will send a notice out to, and you will get it if you are on the roster for this class. Now, there's no way to tell you if you're not on the roster for the class. So, Ralph is going to start around the red box, and if you are not on that roster, put yourself there. Connie will get you at it this week. Second thing, use your common sense. Third, third thing, you can always, you can always tune in online right so what's miserable for some is not miserable for others usually it's precipitation that is the big issue okay um, I don't think I've ever called a class simply because it's cold out but um, for ice and snow golf and goes with it yeah so but it's we're just in that time of year and I would send out an email and it would get to everybody who's on the Tuesday class roster so pay attention when the red box comes around, and Ralph will start that around soon. Right, Ralph? Okay. And um, like I said, there's three, three options there for you. Okay, so, Gary. So this is, the, what we're talking about is the registration for the second cl act class on second act presentation that I'm doing on January 18th. People are having trouble finding it on the website. I'm having, I have trouble finding the website. The place to look for it is in the January 4th email that you got from the church, the second act email. Even if you've already read it, it is still on your computer, unless you went through a lot of work to get rid of it. It's still there. 
It see it could it might be sitting in your trash, but it's still there. So just search by second act, and I think it will show up. And there's a link there that you can use to register. It's really better if you register because that's going to get you lunch. And it would also enable us to tell you that perhaps because of weather, it's not happening, right? So, and we don't, and we don't know what room to have it in if people don't register, right? Like if we had 150 people register, it's not happening here. So that, that's a reason to please go ahead and register. Yes, Kathleen. Wait, I can't hear you, dear. This is more of a biblical question. Okay, a biblical question. We know the lineage of Joseph, and, we, and you're doing women of the Bible in Sunday school. And I'm wondering about Elizabeth and Mary. I know they're cousins. Do we know their lineage? Well, we know that Elizabeth comes from a priestly family, so there's a little bit of that in Mary, but... The focus is not upon Mary because the lineage and the claim to the throne of David is going to come through the husband, not the wife, the male, not the woman. So that's, that, that's why the focus is on Joseph and his, his genealogy. And Jesus has a legal claim then on the throne. Okay? All right. So let me see. I feel like I need just a little bit more volume. Okay. Anything else? Is the volume too high? No. Okay. So I, I just have a few introductory comments about the book of Acts. Um, obviously, this is what we're doing. Now, Acts is the second volume written by Luke. So Luke actually wrote a good portion of the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. They are separated by John's Gospel because the Gospels are all kept together, and John goes last because it's a lot different than the first three. But Luke wrote Luke's Gospel, and Luke wrote the book of Acts. Volume 1, Volume 2, and it's helpful to understand them that way. Okay. It is um, probably written mid-70s to mid-80s. That's 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, Acts is, if you're going to try to cat categorize it by genre, it's an, an ancient history. In the ancient world, the most prized, the most prized um, evidence for things was eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony. That's what people wanted. Now, these days, people want all kinds of data and all the eyewitness testimony. That was the gold standard in the ancient world. And so Luke is a participant in some of what we will read here later in the book of Acts. And others he has gathered as he has gone around and compile this this writing okay um, please remember in this this first bullet Luke is of course being selective all of the gospel writers are selective these aren't terribly long writings even though we might spend 10 months in the book of Acts it's, it wouldn't take you very long to sit down and just sort of read through it 
as John says in his gospel, you could fill a library with everything that he could tell you about Jesus. So it is selective, and it's selective for a purpose. And what do you think that purpose is? That purpose isn't just to kind of answer all of your questions. It's not to give you this, you know, independent, objective, you know, history of the early church. It's not that. It's a proclamation of the good news. That's what, that, that's what these people cared about. They wanted you to know about Jesus, and they wanted you to know about what God has done in and through Jesus. It's like they feel like they have a cure for cancer, and they want to get it out. And so you're not surprised then when you come to Acts and you discover it's kind of a bunch of sermons with some narrative kind of hanging off and around it. There's a lot of speechifying in the book of Acts because it is in and through those proclamations um, that you really, you really encounter what this is happening. Um, Luke, let's see, his direct audiences, look at the second big bullet, third big bullet, Theophilus, who he names. Do we know who Theophilus is? No, not really, but probably Theophilus is a patron he is probably um, helping to support Luke financially so he can compile this work. That's the, probably the most reasonable guess. And so Luke has gone around doing this writing, compiling this, this story, this history, this proclamation um, for Theophilus. And then, of course, it begins to circulate. And it is circulated among the churches in the around the Mediterranean in the, after it's written, and it becomes quickly adopted as um, scripture alongside the Gospels. There are enough indications in it uh, that to say to us that Luke is maybe focused a little bit on a uh, Jewish audience, um, might reflect who Theophilus is, but most scholars would say that Luke is a Gentile. Not everyone. Ben Witherington at Asbury says, no, he thinks, he thinks Luke is, is Jewish. But most think that Luke was a Gentile and writing this work, but very sensitive to um, the Jewish perspective and as well he should because after all, Jesus was a Jew. Right? So that, I don't think that should be too surprising. And if you're going to tell the story of Paul, which consumes a great deal of the book of Acts, you've got to remember that Paul was not only Jewish, Paul was a Pharisee. And as we'll see, Paul would go first into the towns to preach in the synagogue to his fellow Jews, and when they um, ignored him or worse, then he would go into the um, town square and preach to the Gentiles. Okay, um, let's see. What did I put on the next slide? Scott, I have a question from online. Yes. Uh, Linda Rivera is asking, do we have any information as to how the book got the name Acts? Do we know how the book got the name Acts? The original, the actual, the full name of it will make it clear. The Acts of the Apostles. That's like the full official name. Right, and it would have acquired that very early in the church history, I think, as a description of what it is. 
even the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the writers' names are never mentioned. All four Gospels are anonymous. Matthew's name is never given as the writer of Matthew, nor Mark, nor Luke, nor John. So this comes to us from the early church. They put the names on them, um, including Acts of the Apostles. Okay? So let's look at this next slide and see what I stuck here. I've talked about the speech making. Um, so another mistake that's sometimes made with Acts is you people come to it viewing as this big history of the early church. It only traces basically some happenings in Jerusalem for a while, then some time with Peter, and then time with Paul. Not only is it selective, Luke is selective in telling that story, but there's a whole lot of other stuff happening as the disciples go out, and there's lots of traditions and stories about the disciples going out and doing what Jesus told them to do. What did he tell them to do? You'll see in the beginning of the book of Acts, he tells them to go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and they do that. And in the book of Acts, you meet some other evangelists who are out working and spreading the good news. You meet places that have been Christian before Peter or Paul ever went there. All of which tells you what? There's a lot of other things happening. So don't view Acts as, well, Acts is the history of the early church. It's not the way to think about it. It is this proclamation of the good news told through the story of the first followers, but then principally Peter, followed by Paul. And it, it focuses on Paul for a long time. Okay, okay. <laughs> I don't know who I got this from. Luke had access to ear witnesses, okay? Um, nobody in this speech making, whether it's in Acts or elsewhere, I mean nobody was running around with steno pads, right? Nobody is running around with tape recorders or things. So when the speeches are written down, they are the result of an oral culture much more sophisticated than ours. We are crappy at remembering things orally. It's not how we do it. We write it down. We write memos. We have newspapers, emails, magazines. That's how stories get told. That's how stories get passed on. That's how stories get locked in. In ancient cultures, including the ancient Near East, they had a lot of mechanisms for oral storytelling and oral ways of, of remembering. And um, sure, some things would have been written down that Luke would have had access to, but much of it, again, he would have gotten from eyewitnesses or those who knew eyewitnesses, that kind of thing. It's, it's how it was done. And in the end, what do, what do we as Christians proclaim about it all? That it's all God-breathed. It's all that God has inspired this. That God is... Not that God dictated every word. That's Islam and the Koran. But that, but that God work through these writers to produce things in which we can rely on when it comes to matters 
of our salvation and God and Jesus. There's a whole lot of other things we Western people like to talk about. But the scriptures are focused upon the truth of who God is, who we are, our problem, the solution to our problem in the person of Jesus, those kinds of things. Not, not the answers to all questions we have about all things. Um, okay, so we'll see that Peter is the first, the last bullet, Peter is the first major preacher in, in the book of Acts. The book of Acts quickly moves to this big, bold sermon that Peter preaches on Pentecost. And then it moves to Paul. Paul also has, does a lot of speech, speech making in the book of Acts. So, all right. So let's, let me see. Here I have a map. So, yay. <laughs> so this is simply a map of, you know, Judea and Palestine, Judea and Galilee, yeah, whatever, in Jesus' day. And the circles are meant to represent Jesus' command, which we will encounter very quickly in chapter 1, to be witnesses to Jesus in Jerusalem, and then a circle outward to Judea, a circle outward to Samaria, and a circle outward to the ends of the earth. That's what the four arrows, arrows are. Slick, huh? So, um, all right, this map is where we will spend most of the time. This is a map of the Eastern Mediterranean, the Eastern portion of what in that day? The Roman Empire. So, I hope that you're using a Bible that has some maps in the back. If you don't, you need to take, you need to save your pennies and get one. The maps matter. The maps, the maps are what are they, you, you will have a great difficulty following the action in the book of Acts without maps. It, because it is talking about real people, real places, you can find them all. It, ruin, ruins exist for many of these locations. I've been to most, to many of these locations. Okay? So, Maps, you, you, you need some maps, and most, most Bibles will have some maps in the back, so, so think about doing that. Or if you have the old Rose Map handout we used to, we used to have around here, that, that will do as well. I start, that's what this is. This is one of the Rose Maps, but it doesn't have to be that. Any map that you get used to using is, is the thing, right? Um, all right. So, with that, let me see. Are there any questions I can answer in this brief, brief introductory comments to the book of Acts? Good, because I don't like to spend too much time in the introduction. I like to get right, right to it. So I'm going to leave this map up because we're soon going to, you know, it's going to be background for what we're soon going to run into. So.
In the book of Luke, in the last chapter, we have the story of Jesus' resurrection. The night when he appeared to the disciples and ate the fish, and he says, I'm not a ghost. And he takes the fish and he eats it in front of them. Okay? So it's the story of the resurrection. When the book of Acts opens, we're going to get the story of, of Jesus giving the mission. There's two places a mission is given to the disciples. One is in Matthew, which we typically call the Great Commission. That This is the, you know, go and make disciples of all nations, you know, right, baptize them, teach them to obey. Um, and then there is the one that Luke gives us in the book of Acts, and that is where we are. So we're after Jesus' resurrection, um, but he has not yet returned to the Father. Because we are between Easter and Pentecost in that little window. Okay? So look at chapter 1, verse 1. Luke writes this. He says, In my former book, by which he means the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. There are many convincing proofs, meant much, a lot of evidence about the truth of the resurrection. And it is, and it bugs me that so many people who will deny Jesus or deny the existence of God or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or deny the resurrection basically don't know anything about it. They don't know anything about the claims. They don't know anything about the evidence. They just, they just don't want to. And um, I think that's a shame. And so You'll remember that in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters. How many eyewitnesses is that? Right? And so Luke finds out what? That there are many people who have evidence, stories to tell about encountering the risen Christ give many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. This is the period between his resurrection and Pentecost. So we're all, when that same spring, uh, probably maybe 30 A.D., Verse 4, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Will you notice he says he was eating with them? Why was he eating with them? He's alive. He's probably hungry. You know, so what does that tell you? Right there, without it, because this is never used on Easter Sunday, this particular paragraph, to my knowledge. It's telling you that Jesus is has a material body, a body that needs gravity to stay on the ground, a body that, that, that 
eats food. He was eating with them. He was sharing fellowship with them. It gives me hope that in the new heavens and the new earth, I'll be able to eat anything I want and not get fatter. Right? Wouldn't that be marvelous? Every day walking into the brunch at the Weston Stobrier or something and just going crazy for it. I don't know. But, you know, eating is, is food is such an important time of fellowship. And so Jesus eats with his disciples. And over a meal, surely one of many, on one occasion while he was eating with them, just one occasion, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so let's just pull that apart just a little bit. So they're to go to Jerusalem, and there they are simply to wait for this gift that has been promised to them. Now that place, that promise is most spectacularly set out in word, print is in John's Gospel. In John's Gospel there is like three chapters devoted between to the time between um, uh, Jesus' last meal with the disciples and his arrest in the garden. And in that discourse, in that time when actually Jesus is doing almost all of the talking, he says, you know, after me, God is going to send another. You can't come with me where I'm going, but God's going to send another. <clears throat> a helper, an advocate, the spirit, a comforter. So this promise made to them is a promise that though Jesus is departing, he is not abandoning them by any stretch. And as I always... <laughs> often at least teach here you know it's what advantage since the whole book of acts it's very much focused on the holy spirit what advantage does the does the holy spirit have over jesus could be everywhere all the time holy spirit could be everywhere all the time not bound by the way bodies are bound jesus can't be in two places at one time when he's walking the earth, he can't be in Jerusalem and in Nazareth at the same moment. But the Spirit can. Now, Jesus is fully and completely God, right? The Father is fully and completely God, right? The Spirit is fully and completely God, right? But there is only one God, right? Lauren circulated a little symbol, old symbol from the church to the pastors this morning about, about the Trinity, something we proclaim, even though I think you would be foolish to say that you completely understood how these things can, can be. But it isn't surprising then that when Paul talks about the Holy Spirit, on one occasion, he refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. So be careful not to divide God into like three pieces of pie. Right? Even as we struggle with like what, 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 what is it really? The Holy Spirit is fully and completely God. 
You should never call the Holy Spirit it. We will see in the book of Acts that, that calling the Holy Spirit it would be an insult. You don't want to be called it. Do you, Charlotte? No. No. <laughs> Nobody wants to be called it. We don't even call our pets it. We make our pets into little humans. I saw the two adorable dogs you've had for the past while. You're right. We treat them like, we, we try to make them into like little persons because we don't want to treat them the way we might treat a chair or a table. Though maybe you name them, I don't, I don't know. That would be up to you, okay? So the Holy Spirit is not in it. The Holy Spirit is not, is not electricity. The Holy Spirit is not wind. The Holy Spirit may be manifested in, in something like the wind or the dove, but that's all those are. They are just representations. They are things that you can see. It's like when God comes down to the top of Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. What do the people see? They see all these clouds and thunder, There's these theophanies, these manifestations of God's presence with them. If you want a really good shorthand way to remember who the Holy Spirit is, I can't think of a better one than one that was given to us by Gordon Fee. He's a Pentecostal New Testament scholar, and he had a big volume, big scholarly book, which I'm not going to recommend anybody here, big, because it's really like a reference book on, on the Holy Spirit and Paul's letters. But he gave it this great title, God's Empowering Presence. That's who the Spirit is. Why did this stop working? I don't know. God's empowering presence. Right? So they are to go to Jerusalem and they are to wait. And it, I guess it's just going to cut out once in a while. I don't know why. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's scary. Yes. Yes. Well, the change has to do with translation of ancient languages into English and the Holy Ghost. There's, there's, there's one, let's see. There's one thing to like about calling the Holy Spirit a Holy Ghost in that when we conceive of ghosts, they are personal, like Grandma's ghost or Casper the ghost, right? But there's more wrong with it than right because we know what we actually mean by a ghost and it is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not somebody come back from the dead. And we'll see in the book of Acts, there's a story where um, they think that Paul has been executed and his must be his ghost knocking at the door. When Jesus comes to the disciples in Luke 24, he says they think he's a ghost because they, they have the same conception that we do, that, that somebody might come, you know, they would see some apparition of somebody who's dead. And so Jesus says, I'm not a ghost. Hand me the fish. I'll eat it in front of you. You can see that, you know, I'm not. So, so it was switched to spirit and it really is better. But I grew up Every, I grew up an Episcopalian boy and every reference to the Spirit and the affirmations and so forth, it was all Holy Ghost. 
And I made the change. <laughs> I made the change. That's a good change. Yes? Also, why do you think in this whole first paragraph he refer when he says he had a meal with them, why is it always them and not, not us if he's retelling? Luke is writing. He says Jesus had a meal with them, them being his disciples. But Luke is not there. Right? Okay? Well, just ask, or ask me after class. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm hearing you well. Okay. So, so Luke won't enter the picture. And even then, it's not explicit. What happens later on in the book of Acts, you get to this certain part, where all of a sudden Luke is saying, we, 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 we. But not yet. That's a long, that's a long time off. That'll probably be like July. <laughs> Maybe not. Okay, so let's go back to this, what Jesus is saying, because these are, and if for Luke, these are some of Jesus' last words before he returns to the Father. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The baptism offered by John in the Jordan River is not the same as being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When John the Baptist goes out to the river and he calls people there, he is simply plunging them into the water as, a, as an act of cleansing, as an act of repentance, the washing away of sin. And they step out of the water and the, they're cleansed of their sin and they would sometimes even put on clean clothing, right, after that. Now the word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which simply means plunge. So it, it, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer is really John the Plunger. They're just... <laughs> I know, I'm wrecking your world here, aren't I? Yes, oh my gosh, yes. Because it, now, because again, later in the book of Acts, this is going to come. Because you're going to meet an evangelist who doesn't understand the difference. When someone is baptized, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they are baptized into a new life. They are reborn. The old is left behind. There's only the new ahead. It is this dramatic, it's much, it's much more than a simple cleansing. It is, uh, N.T. Wright sometimes says it is, it is a rebirth into a new human race. He sees the churches around the Mediterranean as colonies of a new human race, reborn in Christ, born a second time, which is completely in keeping with what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You're going to be born a second time. Nicodemus goes, what? What? You want to crawl out of my mom's womb a second time? What are, what are you talking about? Jesus says, ah, you don't understand. And, and this, this rebirth is something that Christians today in many churches don't fully grasp and hence very much minimize. Yeah. Yes. My Baptist friends <coughs> tell me, or still do tell me, that baptism is 
Contrition can be part of it, but it isn't, it isn't the essence of it. The essence of baptism is birth into the new you. This rebirth. So where, where Paul will say, you have been crucified with Christ, you have died, and you have been resurrected with Christ, you have been reborn. This is the new life. Paul will say in, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, boom! New creation, billboard. The old is gone, the new has come. So it's... When you are... It's, you know, I, I will often... The, use a little teacherly thing when I will ask people to, if you have been born again, if you're a Christian who's born again, if you're a born again Christian, would you raise your hand? And people are kind of sitting there on their hands because they know what that word has come to mean. And they shouldn't. All the hands should go up because when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are reborn. Okay? Baptism then is part of that process. It, 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 it isn't the marker. The marker is faith in Jesus Christ. You know, in, in the early church, in the earliest days of the church, you would come to faith in Jesus Christ, accepted into the community. Because you had put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you were reborn, and then you would go through a three-year period of catechism, instruction, and then you would be baptized at the end of it. So it's part of the process, but it's not like the magic marker or the magic, it's an act of magic or something. If you, if, if a person, I'd say, you know, they have this blinding moment that God has given them and they fall on their knees and they place themselves fully in Jesus' hands and they truly, truly, truly place their faith and trust in Jesus. And they call up the pastor the next day and said, man, let me tell you what happened to me. I want to come in. I want to be baptized. But the poor guy is struck dead by a truck before he gets the baptism. Is he out of luck then? No, of course not. Of course not. Right? But baptism is, is an essential part of the Christian faith. Why? Because it's one of only two sacraments given to us by Jesus. One sacrament being Holy Communion or the Eucharist. The other being baptism. Catholic Church has other sacraments, but, but, but they, 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 that just kind of loosens the focus. There are two sacraments in the Gospels. Two sacraments outlined by Christ himself. Holy Communion and then this baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so. I have a question. Yes. My question is, why has it become, in modern times, in the secular world, if somebody is called a born-again Christian, people who are not Christian automatically think they're a whack job? Okay, Patty's question is this. Why is it that in the secular world, if you tell somebody you're a born-again Christian, they think you're a whack job? That, that's a quote. Okay. So, so that's, just, that's just a sad thing. Um, I think it is born out of, gosh, I have a couple of thoughts. Do you know what the word Christendom is? Christendom. It's a good word to know, Christendom. Christendom is what the Western world was for hundreds of years, where everybody would have marked off on a form that they were Christian. 
Let me ask you, if everybody, everybody, with few exceptions, just a few, only a few exceptions, marks off Christian on a form, do you think they have actually put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ? I don't. It just became the thing everybody did. When, I think that goes all the way back to the Roman Empire. Once the, once, you know, the Roman Emperor says, I'm a Christian, what do you think everybody's gonna say? Me too, me too, me too, me too, me too. And so, in many ways, that's actually a weakening of the witness to where people who were really striving to be Christians and live as disciples and were comfortable using disciple language and stuff to talk about themselves and their lives would be seen as Jesus freaks. Because other people, well, you went to church on Sunday morning and then you packed it all up in a neat little box and then you set it aside and you went out and lived your life then you came back the next Sunday and you unpacked that little box and you did the church thing and on you go, that's your life. Sure, I'm a Christian, that's it. I unpacked the box, I'm in church on Sunday morning. And that's one piece of it. The second piece is I just think there's a lot of ignorance. The world is filled with biblical ignorance, not just by secular people, but by Christians who don't know their Bibles very well. I, I've been doing this for 20 years and I'm still finding passages and stories that I didn't even know were there. I'm doing numbers on Monday afternoon. That's a trip, let me tell you. Yeah, like we were all stunned yesterday. I, I, I knew it was coming because I had actually prepared for the class, but it, it was when I prepared, it was like, whoa, what's happening here? Never a story I ever heard preached, or of course I didn't, because it's a difficult story, but, but yeah, so, so really knowing your Bible and connecting the dots and putting things together and, and seeing that this passage right here that we're reading in Acts goes back to Jesus's time with the disciples before his arrest and then to John 3 and then to John the Baptist plunging people in and bringing all that together to this sentence, most people can't do any of that and it's unfortunate. Scott, we, don't you think Satan has a little bit to do with it? No, I don't. You don't? No, I think it's, I think it's our own sinfulness our own sinfulness, that we want to concentrate on ourselves. And um, I don't think we need much help with that. I think a lot of other areas where Satan tempts people with things, but I, I think that's just, I think that is just, that's just a measure of the darkness in the human heart. And so the darkness is not Satan? No, the darkness is not Satan. That's our rebellion. That has to be us. You know, um, it's like, remember the old comedian? He's probably dead now, they're all dead. <laughs> I ask Alexa, hey Alexa, how old is so-and-so? Well, he passed away and so, Flip Wilson, you remember Flip Wilson would say the devil made me do it? We do not get to say that. We can't, don't ever have those words come out of your mouth. There is not one instance that I can find anywhere in the New Testament where a Christian could say the devil made me do it. So, no we have to take responsibility and that means acknowledging that there's a darkness in our own hearts and it is our desire 
to rebel against God and put ourselves number one. It is manifested first and foremost in our overweening pride. That is the root of the tree that blossoms into the seven deadly sins. So it is, um, Joseph Conrad wrote a book with a great title. I love titles. The Heart of Darkness. If we can't embrace that, which is, as um, G.K. Chesterton put it, has been empirically proven. Just open your eyes and look around at humanity. Look at right now in 2024. <sighs> wars and rumors of wars are everywhere. Where does it come from? Why can't we just get along? Why can't we live out the Coke commercial from the late 60s and sing songs and hold up Cokes and have a big hug and all that stuff? It would be wonderful, right? I mean, I'm just saying that would be pretty cool. I even like Coke. So, but we don't. We can't because of this darkness in our hearts. And it's a darkness that only God can fix. And God, only God has fixed in Jesus. So I'm preaching it right now. So, okay, okay, okay. So, yes. All of you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. When, when Lauren baptizes, the Holy Spirit, it, it's, what's the word for what baptism is? Um, what do we use? Initiation, incorporation. Initiation, incorporation. Um, and, and the baptism, the Holy Spirit is given to all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. If you wake up tomorrow morning and you say to yourself, I could use all sorts of funny things. Jesus is my guy. I'm putting my faith in Jesus. I'm trusting in Jesus. The Holy Spirit dwells in you when you come to faith in Christ and you step within the community that is called the body of Christ. The capital C Church. The Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. When you step within the true church made up of those who have put their faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. One mistake some denominations have made is they separate the baptism by water from the baptism in the Spirit and they pull them apart, particularly in Pentecostal denominations, and that's a mistake. You'll see in the book of Acts that isn't the case. Yes? Okay, so what Lauren is pointing out for us is that when the pastor puts his hands over the, or her hands over the water and says, pour out your Holy Spirit on this water, it's linking the Spirit with the water. Okay? But it's really, it's not the water. Right? It is the Spirit that dwells in us. And we forget that. We don't know it. We're not taught it. Nobody explains it to us. I've grown up in the church. I, grew, I was an Episcopalian acolyte. I've been in the Methodist Church for 53 years. Most of this stuff nobody told me. 
And I was cheated. I was cheated. I was cheated. A lot of people are. Because I don't know why churches have never viewed that really as their role. Um, but a lot of us here at St. Andrew are determined to put a lot of things right. Yes. We we baptize babies, right? Right. So so let me so so the question is is one I've often gotten many times. The ba can the baby is a baby really capable of accepting Jesus of putting their faith in Christ? But they are the recipients of their parents. Faith. They are participants in that in a way. Let me give you the example which made me get real comfortable with this. Even though I don't know the theological words as well as Lauren does okay, around this. Go to the story of the Exodus. That is the great salvation event in the Old Testament. It is the great salvation event in Judaism. The Exodus. When they run across the Red Sea that's been parted, the adults understand what's happening. That they are being saved from slavery and being brought to a new life, right, in essence, by God on the other side. Now how about the little kids and the babies? Do they understand? No. But are they part of it? Yes. And so they are swept up in their parents' arms and their parents carry them across and they are then put down on this side and they will grow up. And you know what they will then have to do for themselves? Is to decide whether to stay. And is that not basically what confirmation is? Confirmation is, I think, an affirmation that yes, I am staying in this body of faith in this life of faith, in this commitment of faith, which my parents brought me into, even if they had to carry me in their arms. And I, I, I like that. that. That really does a lot for me to try to grasp the complexities. Do you have anything to add to that, Lauren? Yeah. Okay, you want, you want the mic? <laughs> okay. this, just a this, this is why people. This is why people go to seminary. No, these are amazing questions. But I, okay. So Karen's question made me think of one thing that's super important for us to include in the baptism conversation is that it's so much more about God than it is us. That's why contrition isn't the only marker, or faith coming to desire to be baptized isn't the only thing. Being conscious enough in a certain age and bringing themselves forward, because it's all about God's grace. That is the number one linchpin. God's provenient grace that has gone before every single person at every single age from the moment that a child is born. And so that's why we baptize infants is because God's grace has already gone before that child. And so therefore, yes, entrusting the parent's faith and that decision to be brought forth really, though, doesn't limit God at all, right? Like nothing we can do limits God. God is God. We are not. And so that's a huge part of like this baptism conversation is that the Holy Spirit is makes baptisms efficacious, makes them effective, makes them meaningful and incorp true incorporations 
into something that is unlike anything else, which is a new human race. Thank you, Lauren. It's great having her here. Okay, so if you view God's grace, sometimes I've used images of God's grace being like a waterfall that just pours out upon us. So view God's grace as just pouring out on that baby. It's all about, it is all about God, right? We want to logic chop everything. But so much about God does not lend itself to our logically working it all out. Would you agree with that, Lauren? That in, the, in that there is great mystery around God and the things of God. And if you cannot get comfortable with that, you will always be frustrated. Because our brains are, are this big to try to contemplate God and the things of God. Right? So we have to stay humble. We don't want to make the mistake of calling mystery mystery too soon because our intellects can carry us a long way but there are questions that we really that we really can't talk about that's why my great example is always you know the big winner in the golden globes of Zoppenheimer right quantum physics is math it is only math you can't express it in the English language in the English language, it makes no sense. It's math, period, paragraph. Young physicists are great mathematicians, period. So um, there are just limitations that we have when it comes to God and, God and then the things of God and God's great creation and our own intellects. So anyway, very good. Thank you, Lauren. All of that out of one verse, you see? <laughs> You see how long, yes, but it, it's a, you know what, I don't, I never mind. Why don't I, why am not, why don't I get bugged and want to hurry on? Because this is the only place in, well, there are growing numbers of places where one can do this inside St. Andrew. This used to be the only one. Lauren does this at 9.30 on Sunday mornings. Maybe there's a few others, but there's not many where it, you could just bring the questions and we could just talk about them and if we if we go well I don't know like I did yesterday in the book of numbers that's okay all right so gonna go on now okay so Jesus is sending him to Jerusalem just wait the gift God has for you the gift the Father has for you is coming so just wait Verse 6, Then they, the disciples, gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now that verse demonstrates the fact that they still do not understand fully what is happening. Okay? When they say words like those, what they mean is a political upheaval. Meaning, saying to Jesus, well, Jesus, are you ready to kick out the dang Romans and cleanse the temple? They don't really grasp that's okay. We, looking back on it 2,000 years, <laughs> have great difficulty grasping any of it ourselves. Why wouldn't they? You know, they, in the Gospels, they are generally confused. 
right? They don't understand what's really truly happening around them. They think a Messiah is somebody who comes in power and might and wonder and glory to do God's work, to usher in God's kingdom, to kick out Caesar, to kick out the crooked priests. And we shouldn't be surprised that they're still waiting for that, even at this moment. Yes. Walking two years with Jesus, wouldn't they have had it over us to understand? But we have 2,000 years worth of Christians pouring over these scriptures. And it's still difficult for us to grasp. It is so counterintuitive for Messiah to end up on a cross. It is absolutely an oxymoron to say crucified Messiah. And it doesn't surprise me in the least that they don't get it. They don't get it. Like Jesus said himself, well, you know, I could, be, I could die and be raised in three days and they still aren't going to get it. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't find it surprising. I think those expectations about things in this world can be so wired into us that they're almost impossible to break. And indeed, what will break it for these folks? Will they figure it out on their own? <clears throat> no. It's going to be because the Holy Spirit is going to arrive on Pentecost. That's going to be what, what breaks the, I don't know what, logjam, something. Yeah. That, that is what's going to change Peter. Peter, last time we saw Peter, he was what? He was denying Jesus three times. Was Jesus at the cross? No. Why? Because he thought he had backed a crucified Messiah and he knew what happened to people who did. They ended up dead too. So he hides. All the men, men disciples hide. They know. It's not, not a new story in their day. If you back the wrong horse, you're going to end up like the horse ends up. Horse? What am I talking about? <laughs> so, verse 6, that's all that's happening there. Verse 7, So Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. When Dean Still was here from Baylor, that was something he talked about. Arthur's talked about it. I've talked about it. If you come across a Jesus returning countdown clock on the internet head to a different site. <laughs> we don't know. You can't figure it out. Only the Father knows. Jesus says himself in the Gospels that he does not know. But he is going to come like a thief in the night. And so what does it mean for us? <laughs> Dean still got this exactly right. It means for us to be ready. Every day, every moment, every evening, every morning. Someday it's going to happen. Might be 10,000 years from now, might be tomorrow, might be this afternoon. But just be ready. So Jesus says, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in 
Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit is going to come. The Holy Spirit is going to dwell on, in them. The Holy Spirit is going to pick them up, empower them, encourage them, show them the way, um, show them in some cases even what direction they should move, west or east. And they need to go to Jerusalem now and simply wait. And then the Holy Spirit, who is God's empowering presence, right, will come upon them and they will be empowered to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. as Jesus' witnesses. And we, this is the cool part, this is us today. I know this is almost 2,000 years ago, but this is us today. We, in my six-act play that I do, act one, two, three, four, five, five is the story of the church. Acts, Paul, Peter, the other writings of the New Testament. We are in Acts 5 right now. Act 5. Act 6 will be Jesus' return. But they are living in Act 5. We are living in Act 5. What Jesus gives to these disciples of his, these followers of his, he gives us the same mission. It's, it, it's, it's, why, it's the mission of the church. You know, we, are, we have this sermon series called the Missio Dei, right? The mission of God. What, what is God's mission? But there's a Missio Ecclesia. That's Latin. Ecclesia is simply uh, uh, like ecclesiastical, the church. The mission of the church. This is it. We're to go, we're to be God's hands and feet. And that, that's what they do. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. So, verse 9. Well, alright, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Off he goes. Let's talk about that for a second. Do you think he goes straight up? You think if you went straight up far enough, you'd run into God up there somewhere? Or Jesus? Or the throne room of God is so often depicted in the Old Testament? No, you wouldn't. We know more about God's wonderful cosmos today than we knew in the past. In fact, if Einstein's right and the others like him, you would end up eventually back here because of the curvature of time, of space-time. No, it's, it's why, you know, you're better off thinking of it as God as Jesus leaves them in terms that they can understand because for them God is straight up and the dead where are the dead they're all roaming around there underneath the earth so so of course Jesus is going to go up there because that's where you would go to return to the father but he actually is in our understanding of the cosmos now which might be correct at some point down the road he is stepping into God's dimension into the fully manifested kingdom of God. In the Gospels, when he appears in a room, do you think he's passing through a door? Well, can a body, a material body that eats, pass through a door? No. He doesn't, how could he pass through a door? 
and then stand up there and then start eating fish. Casper could pass through a door, but he can't eat fish. So Jesus is resurrected materially. Touch. So what happens? It, does, it, does, it never says he passed through the door. What it says, he has appeared inside the closed room. He steps from God's dimension to ours. And when we pray, as we do every week, for the marriage of heaven and earth, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, what are we praying for? That the kingdom of God would overwrap this and that, that veil, that portal, that separates us from the fully manifested kingdom of God will be gone and the kingdom of God will be evident to all people in all places at all times. Described as the new heavens and the new earth. It's like creation will be renewed and restored. But for now, um, when we come together to worship and we experience and participate fully in the sacredness of that worship, we are getting ever and ever closer to that veil. When we, when we feed and clothe people who are hungry and cold, we are getting ever closer to that, to that veil. And Jesus now, he goes. So now Jesus is gone. So they're going to be without Jesus now. That would be if you had walked with them for two years, walked with Jesus, and then you, had, then you had basically abandoned him and denied him, and then he had been resurrected, and now he's gone again, I would imagine one would be adrift. What do you think? I think I would be adrift at that point. I suspect Peter's adrift. Now Jesus is gone again. So what comes ahead? So, verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky. Where is he going? I can... That would be like so so Instagrammable, right? Get the little video, and you know, there you go. They were looking intently up to the sky, right, as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Who do you think they are? People who simply like white clothing? No, they're a couple of angels. They not, may not be called angels, but I wouldn't know what else to refer to them as. Do you think they have wings? No! no. Come on. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, almost certainly two angels who are, you know, angels are real. They're genuine. They exist. Um, remember, the, remember the caution. There are angels who have chosen for God and there are angels who have chosen against God. And we call those angels demons. Right? That's who Satan is. Satan's an angel who ended up choosing against God. But these are angels who are here to do God's work. And so they're standing beside this group of disciples, which aren't necessarily just the 
Are they the 12 right now? Why aren't they the 12 anymore? Judas, so how many are they? 11. The 11. <laughs> doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? <laughs> They're the 11. And they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Aha. Now we get that. Yeah, Jesus is gone, but that's not, your work is not up in the sky. Your work is, your work is down here. The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way and you have, you have seen him go into heaven. He's coming back. He's coming back. But there is work to do right here. Don't just stand there looking into a, up at an empty sky longing for what is not anymore. It's like in John's Gospel when Mary Magdalene encounters Jesus. And at first she thinks he's the gardener completely understandable. In Judaism, there was no expectation of a single person being resurrected. Jesus died a much-loved rabbi. And so when she encounters somebody, or encounters maybe they're behind, whatever, she doesn't make an instant connection to Jesus. Who would? Who would? And she runs to, to, to hug him and to hold him and to hold on to his feet. And he says, no. Now, I've heard that taught where the teacher says, well, you know, Jesus, you know, he doesn't really have a body. So you, no, she's not. But he does have a body. Read the rest of the scriptures, person. And she, why does Jesus do that? Mary. You can't hang on to me. This is going in a different direction. I'm not staying. I'm, I'll be back for a while, but I'm not staying. You, you can't hold. I'm not. You can't hold on. You can hold on. You can't hold on to me. I'm not staying. Here it is again. He's not staying. Quit looking up at the sky. You got work to do. He'll, he's going to come back. And this is one of, of, I don't know how many hundreds of references in the New Testament to Jesus' second coming. It's why it is a doctrine that there's never been a heresy around. Jesus is returning. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. He's coming back. And we don't know when. We're only charged with being ready. So, that is a wonderful time to stop. I did a marvelous job at the timing on that, didn't I? <laughs> With my wife's help, we said, Scott, you know, yeah. Scott, one thing. Yes. Um, I know you're going to address this next Thursday, but I've been asked online, mm -hmm. is there a certain Bible that you would recommend somebody to buy at the beginning of the year who wants to get a new Bible? Okay, so I'm being asked the question, is there a Bible I would recommend? I take that to mean translation, because there's a jillion forms of every translation. Here at the church, we are now using principally the NIV in public. For my own study, my own work, I use the NRSV because it gets a little bit closer to the Greek. It leaves in the ambiguities. Sometimes the NIV translators solve those ambiguities, but I'm reading from the NIV. I will read from the NIV at the second act presentation. Arthur's used in the NIV. I use the NIV principally on Sunday morning unless for a specific reason. 
I pulled in a piece from the NRSV, and there are, there's more than a thousand. There's a kajillion forms of the NIVs. And what I'm reading from here actually is the iPad version <laughs> of the NIV study Bible. The NIV study Bible, which is, which is good, you know. It's helpful, it's got all kinds of little stuff in it, but there are a lot of different, different things that you could use. Well, I mean, a study Bible brings you some other helps and so forth. Cross-references are great. When, if you have a study Bible, just remember, typically one person writes all the study notes for every individual book of the Bible. And so that's just one person. So the study notes are not the Bible, and the person who writes the study notes, would it's their view on particularly the contentious parts. How about that? Okay, anything else before I pray us out of here today? Scott, yes. May I give an update about Kim? Yes, please. Yesterday she walked a mile outside, and I talked to her on the phone for the first time, and her voice sounded more like herself. Kim had, for those who don't know, Kim had surgery, Kim Myers had surgery on her neck, right back in here, um, where she was having a lot of pain. And so they went in, and where is it? The decision's here, but the pain was back here, right? At least that's where she always pointed when I asked her about it. Down, up, yeah, something was happening, but it did fix the pain. The pain is gone. Yeah, she just got to get over the surgery. Yeah, so. after her surgery, she was like, oh, look at this, I can, you know, and nothing hurts. That is great. because of all the stuff Right. Was not fun. No, it's not fun. That's good. She should, because this is a family, right? We're another term I never embraced as an Episcopalian, but I sure do now. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. You're going to find that language all over the book of Acts. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We have all been born a second time. You know? This is our home. This is our this is our family. Our family in in Christ, in Christo. So would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, well, we've started the book of Acts today. And already we see that there are so many questions and thoughts about who, about you, about us, about our life with you, about your work in this world, your work through Jesus, your work with the disciples. Um, Bring us back here together next week um, so that we can continue this and enjoy this fellowship and this time of learning in this really very short time taken out of our otherwise very busy lives. For we know that as disciples, as disciples, we are here to be apprentices of Jesus, which encompasses actually a great deal of learning. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.